A Blenders on this week's show, Poor Things begins its theatrical run. And because of that, Emma Stone and director Yorgos Lanthimos join the show. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, Blenders, and welcome. Welcome to episode number 289 of Real Blend, a podcast that learned a very valuable lesson today. Stop preparing. Oh, God. My name sometimes, is Sean O'Connell. <laughs> what? Sometimes preparation is good, Gabe. I was going to say, sometimes uh, you learn the wrong lesson, maybe. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm Sean O'Connell. I'm the managing editor at Cinema Blend and I'm the uh, co-host of the Real Blend podcast. And on this week's show, we have a really fun game that we're going to do to round out the year. It's called This or That. I'll have Gabe explain that in a little bit. Poor Things by Yorgos Lanthimos is starting uh, the very beginning of its theatrical run. It's going to make its way out to you guys momentarily. Uh, but as a result of that film coming out, we have Emma Stone, Academy Award winner Emma Stone. And I, I believe soon to be two time Academy Award winner uh, Emma Stone. We shall see. That's a that's a tough that's a tough category. Uh, best actress this year. And she's joined by her poor things director, Yorgos Lanthimos. The two of them are going to be our guests on this week's show. This is a big one, folks. We're really, really excited uh, to have these two on talking about poor things, which I, I think is going to show pretty well in our top 10 lists um, by we and our and all this jazz. I mean, Kev McCarthy of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. Kev, we had a good one. We had a good one this week, didn't we? Yeah, Sean, it's in uh, Gabriel as well. And uh, yeah, it's 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 pretty surreal. <laughs> I, I, when I my favorite thing to do is when I explain somebody explain to somebody what our podcast is and I explain like how we started it and where and where we've gotten to in terms of the interviews that we've had on this show and and having Emma Stone and Yorgos on is just incredible. Um, Especially when you see this movie, you'll understand why it meant a lot to us to get them on because it's really is a filmmaker's film Um, and and it really works on such a great level in terms of narrative and storytelling. So we're excited to have them on. Well, and also, uh, Pop your your favorite adult beverage, even though it's Friday morning, because we started as an awards podcast and uh, and now we're booking folks like Joaquin Phoenix and Emma Stone and obviously having Yorgos on. Uh, They talk a lot about the favorite, as you will see. Uh, They talk a lot about their collaboration and they talk about poor things. So uh, we normally have Jake Hamilton in the chair. Instead, we have the very handsome and equally charismatic Gabe Kovach sitting in. Hey, Gabe, what's going on? Equally charismatic. That's a tough yeah. bar. Just as <laughs> handsome, I'll take, though. Uh, yeah. No, yes, happy to be here. I will let the folks at home know I'm I'm temporarily in Jake's seat. I'm just keeping it warm. He will. He's in the middle of a junket as we speak, and he will be joining us later for that for that fun game that we're doing at the end of the show. So um, you'll have to bear with me for a little bit. And I do want to mention, some people were posting underneath the bonus episode that we put up this week uh, mm-hmm. with director Sam Esmail. Uh, who has a film coming to Netflix called Leave the World Behind. Kevin's going to review that in a hot minute. Uh, People were posting, thank you so much for the bonus episodes. We understand how busy it is at the end of the year. You guys have no idea. The end of the year is such a slam on the schedule in terms of us trying to fit in junkets, especially after the strike um, and and a lot of talent coming back around um, and, and all these studios who are kind of pushing for their awards contenders and trying to get them in front of press before the holidays happen. And it just feels like a very busy season has become even busier right now as we're fielding a ton of um, 
interview opportunities and, and invites that are coming in. But I hope it leads to really exciting content for, for the show. Uh, we have a couple of things in the hopper that might come through. So keep your fingers crossed. If you're watching us on YouTube, thank you very much for joining us. Um, head down, give a like and a subscribe. Uh, for audio listeners, if you want to jump over and see the visual aspect of the of the show, especially this week where we have uh, your ghosts and Emma Stone joining us, go to youtube.com backslash real blend podcast. Um, Gabe, aren't we coming up on like 16,000 followers? We're coming close to that. If, if oh, not. YouTube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're yeah. very close to that. Unbelievable. I wonder. Unbelievable. I don't think it's I don't think we'll pass it by the time this airs, but we're getting close. OK, this might do it. <laughs> Uh, and Mom, if you want to listen, yeah, please call your friends. Come on, let's go. Uh, sign up for Real Blend Premium as well, too. It gives you an ad free version of the show and it gives you a newsletter from me every other Friday, not this week. I'll be back into your inboxes next week. So check the description for information on where to sign up. Quick plug, as I mentioned, we have that bonus episode on all of our channels uh, with Sam Esmail talking about uh, Mr. Robot and. Uh, having uh, Barack and Michelle Obama as producers on your show um, and some of the uh, the importance of physical media for a movie that was made um, for Netflix and a really interesting conversation about some of the conversations they had about that. So go check out our conversation with Sam Esmail uh, on behalf of that. He, I will say to to plug it even further, he's one of those guests that fits right in. I know we say that about a lot, but he his energy, how much fun he was having, you could tell that like, we got to that point where we're just kind of, you guys were just kind of geeking out uh, about certain things and even just stuff that he was doing or what he was influenced by. And yeah. I think the interview part of him just kind of fell away. And I think at the end, he even complimented the both of you of like, this was a lot of fun. And that's, that's I think that's always what we're going for. Yeah, he had come to D.C. Uh, to talk about the film Leave the World Behind, um, uh, which is streaming on Netflix as you're as you're now listening to this episode. It's and we'll review it uh, later in the show. But him and I ended up really bonding in my green room at my station about filmmaking. We just talked about shots and composition and things like that. And I, I, I think it was him or someone around him said like, you guys should be on a podcast or something like that. And, <laughs> and, and then real blend cop brought up and, and Sam was nice enough to then carve out some time in his day this past weekend uh, when we were in New York uh, to talk with us. He actually came in earlier than his press day started to do that interview. Um, so thanks to Netflix and, and Sam for doing that. And really Sam cool. is extremely talented. And if you haven't seen Mr. Robot, just want to plug back. It's a great show that he obviously was <laughs> incredibly well involved in. Um, it's a, an amazing show. So I never uh, watched definitely it. check that out. Oh, it's yeah. fantastic. I never Robbie watched Malik is amazing. Yeah. One of those shows that just like flew underneath the radar for me. It never, it never got landed oh, on my radar. So. Incredible. It's really it's incredible. Good. Yeah. Is it? Cool. Yeah. I don't even know. I don't really even know what it's about. So that's that's fun to go into a show like that. Sometimes it's yep. being completely cold. So um, case in point, uh, there's a movie coming out called Poor Things. And Michelle, uh, I have the screener copy of it. Michelle keeps saying, like, when can we watch this? And she keeps asking me questions about it. And I just sort of deflect like I don't want to tell her anything about it going in. She refers to it as uh, the movie where Emma Stone doesn't wear makeup. And I was like, it's so much, <laughs> so much more <laughs> than a, that. But in Believe a way, me. that's such a funny way to to sort of encapsulate what it really <laughs> yeah. is about. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. There's a piece of it that they're like, yeah, that's a should we set that up? I mean, like for people like who don't know what it is. Should we just explain the film real quick? Or I don't we talk know. About? Let's get yeah, to the that's interview interesting. and we'll, we'll review the film well, on the other side. Yeah. Okay. So we are very excited to have uh, both Emma Stone and Yorgos Lanthimos joining us on behalf of Poor Things, their follow up to the favorite. Uh, and we're really excited for you guys to hear this conversation. Here is Emma Stone and Yorgos Lanthimos. This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. 
Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. But one thing I find interesting, Yorgos, is your use of lens choices. And I was interested from a narrative perspective as a filmmaker, when you're in a sequence, how you decide the narrative use of a lens from a technical perspective. Yeah. That geeky. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's pretty geeky. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we try. Uh, I think what we do, like we don't uh, design everything beforehand, like how we're going to film the scenes. Uh, what we do with, you know, Robbie Ryan, I've, I've made the last two films together that you know of, and we've already shot another film with Emma and Robbie. And um, what we try to do is like, just before we start, like build some kind of a, a language and a toolkit and say, we're going to use these tools. Um, we, we test a lot and we look at things and see, you know, how it fits into the world that we're building. And then we have these tools and, when the time comes, uh, we just, you know, on the day we rehearse with the actors and then start thinking of what the best way would be to film the particular scene. And I think there's like a, a, a learning curve. So maybe in the beginning we shoot more stuff to have more options when we don't really know exactly what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Not that we ever do, but uh it, it becomes a little bit more familiar and you know the language becomes a little bit more specific and then we have some shorthand about like what we how we're covering something or when we use this kind of lens or the other kind of lens so this time around because we were building it's the first time that we actually uh make a film in in inside the studio and all the sets are built inside even exterior locations are built in a studio for most of the film so that meant a lot of lighting as well. Uh, and for the first time ever, for the first time ever, because all the films that we've done before and I've done before have been on location just with natural light or practical lights. Uh, so mm -hmm. this was like a huge departure for both Robbie and myself. And what we what we did was try and keep the same kind of ethos. So we decided that we we're going to light pre-light everything pre-light the sets and especially when we're inside a room we would light only from outside and then use practicals inside so in a sense we just uh, 
retain the same kind of conditions as we were, you know, when we were filming uh, on location with with uh, you know available light, and that's because we we want to just create an intimate atmosphere on set and just have you know the camera there, the AD, the focus puller, the actors, and the boom operator sometimes. Uh, even so, uh, this film particularly, you know, all the, 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 the more intimate scenes, the sex scenes and all that, some, most of the times we didn't have a boom operator and we would just, we, we would rig the mics and it was the least amount of people possible. Um, so we just try, we kind of recreated that kind of the same kind of atmosphere, although this was like a completely different scale of film. And then you would go outside and see these hundreds of people, you know, around and lights and trucks and, you know, construction going on and everything. But then you would close the door and it was just like four people like filming, you know, like there's no one else around in the world. Mm. Um, I don't know if that spoke to the lenses and all that, but nah. it's just like the... the <laughs> Well, but building off that, though, Emma, I want to ask you about this because we've talked to a lot of different actors who have said, like, they prepared a ton and then they get to the set the day of. And based on the way that the set is, they have to almost throw out everything that they prepared because they didn't anticipate, you know, the way uh, the, the the set may be designed so that the camera can move through or anything. And, and one of my favorite scenes in this movie is Bella when she first just decides to wander around Lisbon, because I feel like I'm taking it all in with her for the very first time as well. So. Did you have that sense when you were going around the sets? And was there one in particular that when you got to it, you were just like, oh, everything I prepared doesn't matter. I just have to throw it out. You never prepare. I don't prepare. For the reason that you... <laughs> Why should I prepare if I'm going to throw everything away? So you just exactly. wait. Why prepare? Just figure it out on the day. Stay rests. I rest. I like to lay down. <laughs> A lot. No, it's... Uh... I, you know, the the preparation for something like this was, it, it was truly like, we worked on some physicality, Orgos and I together and, and the stages, I learned my lines and that's well, kind of it. The wow. stages, Bella's development, like stages okay. one through four. Oh my God, I they understand what I'm talking about. What stage? You didn't tell the people what stage. Fine. One through five, we kind of, we made it one, stages one through five in Bella's development. And so we kind of, you know, if we had to jump around it was mostly in chronological order, but at the very beginning at Baxter's house, we we had to shoot stage one, the very beginning and stage five, the very end mm -hmm. of the film. So without having shot kind of her development in the middle. So that the, the actual practical physicality of that, we, we worked on a bit, but that would still change on the day. And then beyond that, I mean, we've worked together for long enough to know that like, once we're in the environment, we'll find things, we'll talk about it um or not talk about it but just kind of figure it out as we mm. go but in the same way that he doesn't storyboard you know i mm. i um it, it you do kind of need to be in the environment and not have something but i but i've never really been an actor that's like i have this exact idea in my mind and this is what i'm gonna do i beg of you when you're on stage holding that oscar please just pull a joe pesci and just say uh, i i didn't prepare anything and just walk off that would be <laughs> <laughs> the greatest speech. Uh, Emma, you did mention you guys working together before. I would imagine, you know, I keep hearing a lot over this press tour the word trust. And I would imagine this is the kind of film that only works if you've got that trust between the actor and the director. Could you have made a movie like this if you were working with a director for the first time? 
I don't think. I mean, maybe if it was you. <laughs> <laughs> I guess maybe if we hadn't made the favorite movies, made this one. Yeah, maybe, I guess yes. Other than that, no, I can't really. I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't yeah, yeah, have yeah. wanted to. I mean, the combination. I think of of those factors. Like I, I love Bella so deeply, and and the story so deeply. But then also, um, you know, him and his work, and yeah. and Yorgos and his work, and uh, so I think that all of those elements coming together were what made me want to do this so mm. so bad. This is a question for both of you. Um, Yorgos, correct me if I'm wrong, but like with the favorite and obviously the killing the sacred deer and, and obviously the lobster and films prior to that, you generally don't use new composition, new music. Uh, it's generally music that already exists in the world, like Beethoven um, and things like that. The score here is so extraordinary and a voice almost, in my opinion, it's almost like Bella's voice in a way, in a way, the score just kind of speaks to us almost like a character aligned with the cinematography as well. So for your goes for your part of the question, why this film did you decide that you wanted to actually have a composer and insert music that what didn't exist? And for Emma, I'm always fascinated to know on the other side of production, when you see your performance set to a score emotionally what that's like for you to then finally see it all come together and does it open up at all things about the character you didn't know by hearing it set to that i'll start with you emma and then go to you yorgos um <laughs> i well you know I, I mean not to sort of start stealing your answer but jerskin the, jerskin actually wrote most of this music before we even started filming so i I'd, I'd heard a, a large portion of what this score was going to be before we started filming and you know the dance in Lisbon he had written that song and we'd been rehearsing with that song for a long time and he's actually in that scene playing an instrument that was completely made up with this. oh that's cool I was talking about earlier sorry um anyway so I, I think you know even beyond score everything coming together and seeing it is always kind of um startling or reveals things, you know, the editing in general, performance wise, all of it is, is um, a, a different interpretation of the character than you know what is going on within your own body. I mean, it's like hearing your voice back on a voicemail, you know, and you're like, that's what I sound like. <laughs> that's what it kind of feels like. It's like one thing when you're having a, when you're acting within yourself, but then you watch it and you're like, that's what I looked like when I was doing this. I sound like that, whatever. So you try to you try to have like enough distance from it to not have that sort of attachment to mm. what you think it's supposed to be. And I guess that goes back to what you're saying about what we were talking about with preparation. Like if you don't have this sort of otherwise I should just be directing if mm. I need it to be such a particular way, you know, and that's why it's amazing to work with him, because I trust that what ultimately it's all going to become is is, you know, is what you've seen is yeah. um do you want to talk and about your, yeah i'm just curious about the decision to finally to use a composer yeah well i mean i was it's not that i wasn't trying before i did try but <laughs> it, it didn't it, it, it never really worked out because the way i do it is i i want to use the music while i'm editing and um i you know, like I, I'm researching a lot while I'm editing a film and I, you know, find the music and then I try it. And it's such a it's such a fine balance, you know, the tone that is created by using music uh, in a scene that, 
you know, when I find something that works, then it's kind of impossible for me to like replace it with something similar or or something different. So, mm-hmm. you know, the attempt of, you know, using temp music and then having a composer, um, you know, write music and substitute that never really worked for me. Not that the music that the, the composers wrote was bad or anything. It was, it was just not that exact, you know, it didn't achieve that exact tone that I managed to get while, you know, combining all the elements. So uh, when when we're preparing the favorite, I, I, I and I'm always, you know, looking for, I, I, I listen to a lot of music as well, and I'm always reading about it and looking for composers. And, uh, and you know, I came across uh, Jerskin's uh, album. I, I read about it and I, I then I listened to his album and I was, you know, completely... We're preparing poor things, don't favorite. Uh, poor things. Sorry, we're preparing <laughs> poor things. Did I say the favorite? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> preparing poor things. <laughs> so I listened to uh, his album, which is, you know, the, his first album. It's it's an incredible, but it's like a pop album, but it's so diverse and so rich and so original and unique and, uh, and it has incredible sound. And uh, so I just, something very instinctive told me that could this be the guy like it it mm. feels like there's something in this that makes me feel like you know this could work and then as Emma said like I approached him but the way we did it, it was like well he he'd never written you know music for a film before right so I said like listen do you want to try it and you know why why don't you just try and write he music was like 25 years old or 24 or something wow that's incredible he just turned 28. What? Yeah. That's insane. That's great. What am I doing with what? my life? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Seriously. That's incredible. <laughs> so, so I, yeah. So I asked him to just, you know, try stuff out and I gave him some general direction and uh, he came up with stuff that were immediately incredible. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of it is in the film and then based on what he sent me, like we had another chat and I would, you know, imagine what we might need. And I was going like, oh, why don't you do one which is much more romantic and something which is faster? I might need something faster in some moments. And he was just composing music based on just having read the script and looking at some of the, you know, research, the visual research and design of the world. And he was just coming up with that stuff. And you know, we would like hone in on the on what the sound would be. So he would do more stuff in the beginning and then we would, you know, pare it down to what it should be about this film. And then by the time we started filming, I basically had all the music composed and recorded, you know, before we even shot a frame of the film. Mm. And wow. so I, I worked with it the same way I worked with music before, which is like I had all this library of music by Jerskin though this time. And, you know, I started using it during the edit and I would cut it and, you know, uh, kind of sometimes change the structure or whatever. And then he would, you know, make it better because, you know, our cuts were quite rough. But basically, uh, like 90 percent of the music that is in the film is the music that he composed, you know, before uh, he even saw anything or we shot anything. And that's how it worked. And actually, that's how we're doing because he's he's working with us on on the next film that we shot that we're now editing, and we did it the same way. And he, the music that he wrote on this film is completely different to to Poor Things, but we followed the same process. Like he, you know, I I, I sent him the screenplay, 
sometimes I, I send him, he also doesn't watch rushes or anything like that, like dailies. He, I would just send him pictures to get the atmosphere of set. Sometimes it's, it's also misleading pictures because for the film we just did, I just send him black and white pictures, you know, the whole you time. Send him black and white that whole time? Yeah. So, um, so he he gets a sense of what's going on, and then that gets him going, and he he composes. And again, we had we had the music before we started editing. So, it's the only way I found how to work with a composer without them having to, you know, like replace music that I kind of knew used while editing. It has um, so far for us that's awesome guys after we after we finished the press day yesterday um the three of us got together and started working out our questions and one thing that uh, jake told me which blew me away was that because to me even though it's such a unique vision there's confidence in every decision that's made um there's confidence in every performance and so when i heard that mark ruffalo like almost begged to get out of the performance or that emma that you had such fear on day one like it doesn't come through you told me that you cried on day one you cried on day one i cried every day well, <laughs> you almost, I wanted to kind of ask, like, how do you help your actors with doubt like that? And Emma, w- when did that confidence finally kick in for you? Well, I don't remember. Like Mark says, I said, like, when he told me, like, oh, I don't think I can do this. Maybe you should get someone else. I went like, you are you are the one, which doesn't sound like me. It but that's how like you. he always says that. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't really put an impression. <laughs> So <laughs> don't do the impressions, but you can do the part. Uh, <laughs> no, you know, like everybody has doubts and, you know, uh, you know, Mark was, you know, he'd never done anything like it. And, you know, of course he, he was hesitating, but, you know, I could see that he really appreciated the material and he, uh, deep down, he really wanted to do it. He was just scared, you know, like, and that's like a, the best reason to do something, you know, and to expect that it, you know, something interesting might come out, might, might come out of it if you're scared. So I just uh, encouraged him. I said, I said, probably. It's a great impersonation. Emma, that fear was there for you the whole time? I think um, I don't know that fear is the right word. It's it's more just like more vul- kind of like vulnerability or wanting to mm. live up to it, like caring so deeply about this this character and this film that I I want to do it justice. And I um, and so I guess I guess that's fear, but it's kind of not. It's like it's more just being hard on myself. Gotcha. I um, yeah, more like self critical not when she's resting though not when i'm resting when i'm resting <laughs> i'm no judgment, no judgment. <laughs> uh, we're being told we're out of time but we really appreciate you guys taking the time to come on the show because we know how valuable your time is and all three of us love this movie so much and uh we can't wait for more people to see it so I've thank you the screener so three times oh my god uh, yeah. no jake you've gone to the theater Oh, yeah, that's exactly right. I've gone to the theater and paid three times. Never saw it in the theater. Oh no! The first time I saw it was in the theater. Don't worry. The first time I saw it was in the theater. But but the, there's a thing that happens where my girlfriend also came with me to the screening, who who is obsessed with this film. And every time, yeah, every time someone comes over, she goes, 
Jake put on poor things for them. So <laughs> that's like, that's not, that's the new welcome to our home is we put on poor things and go sit down. You've got to watch it. We know you came over to see the dogs, but we're going to put on poor things for you. Obviously we want to thank our friends at poor things uh, for helping to get Emma and Yorgos on the show. Uh, we want to really quick, give a, a, a spoiler free reaction and review to this movie, which we all anticipate we're going to be talking about over the course of the awards season. It's really funny to hear um, people who are discussing this film and talking about as being Yorgos Lanthimos's most accessible film. And I guess that says to me a lot more about his other films um, and how unusual they are. If you know his films, The Lobster, uh, The Favorites, um, what was there's another one that I'm missing. The Killing a Sacred Deer is the and then Dogtooth, of course, if you go all the way back to those. Um, they are unusual films uh, with it from a very strong uh, directorial voice. Uh, clearly, you know, you're watching one of Yorgos's films when you watch it. Um, I have been saying on on record, you know, over the course of of, the, of this show that his films don't always work for me necessarily. I'd, a lot of times these guys will have films like The Favorite or, or, you know, even I think going back to The Lobster and have them in their top 10. Um, and it, it's never really connected with me. It's always been a little bit too strange. I ran into that when I watched Saltburn uh, recently, where it was just I understand what the filmmaker is going for. It just doesn't work for me. But but poor things worked so incredibly well. It's my absolute favorite Yorgos Lanthimos film, which for me, I know isn't saying much, but I really, really loved what he was trying to do here. So much of it is because I think Emma Stone is so fantastic uh, as Bella Baxter, this character that she's playing, um, it's a tough performance that she has to give. Uh, it it's we were talking about the fact that uh, in a in a side chat that it's a really warm film, despite uh, it, it being extremely different and strange. And and they all everybody who we talked to from the craft perspective standpoint of the film talked about knowing that it's really weird and it might turn a lot of people off. And there's a bunch of things that they hit you with in the opening 10 to 15 minutes that are meant to keep you back on your heels and kind of jarring like, okay, it's period, but you know, it's Kevin mentioned, it's a bit of a Frankenstein movie. Um, and you're trying to figure out a lot of what is going on before it gets revealed, what the hook of it is uh, to me, the performances are what are what anchor it, the screenplay obviously too, but the way that these, these actors, Mark Ruffalo, Willem Dafoe, and, and obviously Emma Stone, um, the way that they tackle these characters, I loved it. Um, this is clearly going to make my top 10. I'm just trying to figure out where it lands. Gabe, you were trying to inject some stuff. I'm sorry. I just kept rambling. No, 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 you're good. I wanted to add cause, cause I agree with you, um, with all of that. And I think what I've been telling friends, like the, the way I've been selling it, cause I also love this movie and it's one of those movies that every day that's passed, I still think about it and I just find myself loving it even more and I can't wait to rewatch it. Yeah. Um, but as far as like the Yorgos aspect, the, the to me, Yorgos has always had like a very surreal, fantastical world that he's telling his stories in. But those the surreal, fantastical nature is all internal. And you're just kind of like, why are these characters acting this way? And oh, this thing exists. But totally. This, this yeah. is him going. This is like Yorgos Lanthimos via Wes Anderson, where he's just externalizing the surrealism. And yeah. I mean that in the best way, whether you Great like Wes way Anderson to put or it. not. It's um, and not in the style of Wes Anderson. I just mean in the way that Wes Anderson puts his world in front of you and you're living in this like you have to take a second to be like, OK, this is the real world, but it's definitely not. And it's and it's surreal and it's and it's fantastical and it's interesting. Um, and, and it allows for these characters to be so different, but feel 
uh, like they really exist. That's so you nailed it, because I think what bothers me about his previous characters. Yes, the favorite is a period film, but like, let's say The Lobster is an example, like if it's set in contemporary time or or feels like it's supposed to be contemporary or modern time. So when characters act the way that they do, it, it always like what what world are we in? Right, this right. is passable kind of thing. But then um, Poor Things builds these incredibly elaborate, you know, sets to drop Bella and the other characters into um, that I think that's helped me, you know, it, it sort of broke down that barrier between what normally separates Yorgos's storytelling um, from me. And uh, Kev, is this a top 10 movie for you? And I, I hate to make you commit to the bit, you know, for your list. But is it did you like it that much? Oh, definitely. Definitely yeah. top 10. This is my favorite movie Yorgos has made. Mm. Um, I think it's the best film he's made. And uh, as you heard in the interview, uh, there's a lot of fascinating things about the production of this movie that were fascinating, especially in the interview that you just heard that they built that these sets were built. This was very different from how they shot the favorite and the killing of sacred deer and the lobster and films like that. Um, the sci-fi aspect of it is fascinating. Um, and I'll say this, like imagine if get out and the lobster had a baby, <laughs> that's kind of how I'm going to put this. And yeah. I, and I, I want to say get out, specifically only from the science fiction perspective. Um, hmm. And then the lobster uh, similarly similarly kind of in that in that realm. Um, but I do want to say I'm not putting the movie in a box and saying it's those two. That's just the vibe it gave me in terms of some of the sci fi aspects of it. What I love about this movie is it's such a sweet story just told in a very unique way. Um, it's like like Frankenstein is a really interesting terminology for it. And I think Yorgos, like I think Frankenstein was part of like the selling point in terms of like getting the actors involved or you should watch this material type of thing because it clearly revolves around that. Defoe is is that character. It's an experiment. Um, but what's beautiful about the movie, as I, as I said in the introduction, is the sense of wonderment that Bella has. I love spending time with this character. Mm. It was it. it you we forget we live in a world we're so jaded as a society we you know the when you first bite into like a, a cookie for the first time or a piece of pizza for the first time there's just moments that of wonderment and excitement that you get that just become diluted as you live i will just leave it at this i think emma is brilliant in the film i think it's one of ruffalo's best performances i think it's one of defoe's best performances uh, Rami Youssef, um, I, I want to shout out to him as well. I think I'm pronouncing his full name right, but he this is one of his first, mm -hmm. if not his first major it's his first movie yeah. feature film. Yeah. Um, and I got to tell you, this guy holds his own against these giants. These I mean, you're talking about three of the greatest actors of our time. And he is just crushing it. And when um, you say so, Willem Dafoe's best movie, like that's a mouthful. One of his. And it's one true. Of his. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. I know. But even saying that is like incredible when you look at his career. Well, and I agree with you. I think he's a phenomenal in it. I'm waiting for someone to mash up like the, the beginning of this movie with the lighthouse and some sort of yeah. like, look where the character <laughs> is now. Like yeah. there's, some, there's some bit to be played there. Two more quick points I want to make real quick. Um, there's a really interesting juxtaposition in this film about science and and feelings and the mm. way the hard facts of life and the feelings that interweave themselves into creating who we are as human beings. And I think that's what the film is juggling with, right? This science experiment, essentially. And then at the same time, you have the feelings of a human being. And how do you how do you capture that? How do you yeah. keep that at bay? Um, that to me is a really interesting theme and the theme of curiosity. But the cinematography is outstanding. You are in this world. And oh, I, I loved loved the way Yorgos explained the way they shot this and the way this is like his first major score. 
too. They really hired a composer really for the first time in one of his major movies. He's used existing music throughout before. Yeah. Um, I think it's except for his first score. movie. Yeah, it is. It's amazing. a great score. All right. So like I said, we're going to be talking about this film a lot as we roll through the award season. Uh, look out for it as it makes its way to your market because it's really terrific um and we can't recommend it enough obviously if, if we're all saying it's gonna make our top tens i think jake feels the same way um we're gonna roll him into the show in a little bit uh quickly before we move on though with sam uh Mal being on the show kevin i want you to talk about leave the world behind this is an amazing cast I, I i fear it's one of these netflix films that's just getting buried somewhat i know some people were commenting underneath his interview like oh i wish i had the chance to see this in theaters and it's mm. It's sad that there are a lot of these streaming films um, that do traditionally go to streaming and we don't get a Ridley Scott or a David Fincher push, you know, where it goes to the theaters, because this feels like something I would want to see in a, in a movie theater. No, it did. It did have a theatrical. Oh, it did. Um, it's, okay. it's, it's okay. actually been in theaters for a couple of weeks. Um, okay. So it's been playing in like the. I'll call, I'm going to call it the killer release uh, where they just throw it into these random small theaters uh, throughout the country, which is great. I saw the killer in theaters. I'm, I'm happy that I did. Mm. But when Netflix puts a movie out in theaters, unless it's Knives Out 2, you're, you have to go to like a kind of not, not, not the small Alamos are big movie theaters, but they're not the AMCs and the Regals. So they're kind sure, of harder yeah. to find. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to give my friend Chris Van Vliet credit for this because he said this is like this could be the next bird box um, for Netflix uh, because it's an it's a great point because that movie was a phenomenon. It was a huge film for Netflix. I think this is going to be the same thing as Chris was pointed out to me. He's Interesting. Like, th- there's thematics in this film that are going to that are going to mess with people, and there's going to be a lot of conversations around it. Um, for people who aren't familiar with the story, basically Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke's characters bring their kids to a luxurious beach house, essentially. Um, and when they're at this house, which they've rented, uh, a cyber attack essentially happens. We don't know where who it's coming from, but Internet's down, TV's down. That's why it's kind of a love letter to physical media. All the things that you physically still have in your life work like vinyl or um, things like that. And so that's cool. uh, What ends up happening is uh, in the middle of the night, uh, Mahershala Ali's character and his daughter, they, they knock on the door and kind of like knock at the cabin kind of felt like in a weird way. Um, but Mahershala Ali actually owns this house that Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke are staying in. And he's like, listen, uh, there's a lot going on out in the world right now. Um, can we please stay in our own house for the night? And that's a strange you know, interaction, right? Because it, it's it's Mahershala's house, but Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke are renting it. But Mahershala has nowhere to go because the world is in danger. Um, so it's a really interesting concept. Um, it's shot immaculately. Um, it's incredibly well made and it's made by a filmmaker who obviously loves movies right and sam if you listen to our interview you can get that um there's a lot of children of men stuff in this film that then sam geeks out about that a lot um there's a lot of shots in this film that were reminiscent of what chivo and koran did on children of men julia roberts is exceptional this is like such a different role for her uh, and, and, you know, I, I'm a hip hop nerd, so I love uh, I, I've really been getting into a lot recently. Joey Badass. And there's a really great <laughs> Joey Badass song that starts the film in the credits. It's just it just sets the tone for the whole film. Um, I, I was go listen to our bonus episodes. We got to We got to round this out and move on. But um, there's some shot compositions in here. If you're a nerd about movie making and you love filmmaking and you want to learn what's going on in a filmmaker's mind, why they choose to put a, an actor or a character in a certain part of the frame or leave this much headspace. Same with the same with poor things. Dive into that stuff. I mean, it really does enhance the way you watch movies. If you start to learn about where these filmmakers are coming from in terms of narrative uh, composition. So I thought it was outstanding. It's ambiguous. 
It's scary. It mm-hmm. makes you think about technology, what we're doing with technology. There's, an, there's a Tesla sequence that terrified me. Every time I see a Tesla now, I think about that scene. So you think about the power of movies and what they do to you in your real life when you leave. And this is one of those thinkers. Um, and it's very ambiguous. I really, really enjoyed it. And I highly recommend it. Um, and if you watch it on Netflix, great. If you can get to a theater, even better. Good. Very good. Well, that's a, a great recommendation. I'm going to check that movie out myself. So I'm glad that Sam joined our show. So uh, let's take a really quick break and we'll see you guys on the other side as we round this show out. And we are back. OK, so we were hoping to have Jake join us, but I think he's um, working out how to do a Tango and Cash sequel with Kurt Russell. Uh, clearly more important than joining our show, which is totally fine. I get it. Uh, Jake's going to bring his Monarch interviews, I'm sure, to the Jake's Takes channel. So make sure you guys look out for that. Um, instead, in order to save the game that we were going to do with him, um, we'll do that on another episode. But there are a couple of movies that uh, have been coming out right now. And I've been talking about how busy we've been trying to cram in as much stuff by the end of the year. And the boys last week got to talk about uh, David Fincher's The Killer. I received a few emails uh, from our listeners who shamed me into not having seen Fincher's latest movie. Uh, <laughs> and and you're correct. I, I honestly and that was the point of the newsletter that I wrote, which is we have these filmmakers that the moment they put something out. Uh, we should be do- watching them on day one. And there were two projects that I just felt like I was behind on. Uh, one was The Fall of the House of Usher, which obviously we love Mike Flanagan, and the minute he put something out, I should instantly start watching it. Um, and the other one was The Killer, and I want to let everybody know that The Killer was have you, incredible. Have you so, finished Usher? This is a tangent. No. You talk about uh, yeah, okay. I'm, on, I'm on episode five, uh, okay. and it's, uh, again, it's just finding time. It's just yeah, finding, yeah. It's, uh, it's busy. finding time, and I don't want to rush it. You know, no, I want to enjoy so that good. as much as I could. And that was the thing about the killer was like I wanted to make sure that when I sat down I wasn't distracted by anything I wasn't doing it you know for 30 minutes and then leaving and coming back because David Fincher he creates a mood and an atmosphere and that's as much the experience as everything else um, I'm going to break the real blend tie because I know that like Gabe and Jake uh, liked it but but weren't blown away by it. Kevin, I know that you loved it. I'm in the loved it camp. Well, I guess I guess I'm creating You're gonna make a tie. A tie. You're gonna yeah, I guess a tie. I'm creating a tie. <laughs> yeah. I thought that movie was hysterical. Um, and, and so much of it is. So I was listening to uh, our good friend Josh Horowitz and his podcast. He had Michael Fassbender on and Fassbender talked about how he recorded the narration track. Mm-hmm. Um, where he just he laid back like really comfortably and they hung the cue cards over him, like <laughs> up above him. And that like mood. image yes yeah. just like i i guess yeah. i i felt that and saw it every time that that fastbender did the narration it's just it's so great um and the the repetition I, i'm not going to repeat what what whatever the mantra is that the fastbender's character keeps saying to sort of center himself of like you know uh be prepared you know mm. um God, I can't stick even to think the what plan. it is he stick says, to the plan he, he says um, anticipate don't improvise or don't so improvise, much of anticipate. that felt like um what Fincher would say to himself as a filmmaker, you know, <laughs> sure. like I thought about all those different lines and I was thinking of David Fincher saying that to himself to get him through all of his projects. Um, I will agree with the guys when they say that it doesn't reinvent the wheel. Like we have seen this story done before, but I legitimately felt the attention and the, and the composition and the talent in every shot. Like I can't tell you how many just throwaway shots 
that I saw where I was like, oh, my God, that's that's beautiful. Like, oh, my God, that's incredible. Um, Kevin talks about filming, you know, on film uh, and Fincher notoriously does digital. I think Fincher does digital better than anybody else. Um, there are scenes in New York City when you get to the where it's leading up to the confrontation with Tilda Swinton's character, which is miraculous. Um, and it just looks incredible. So much of it looks incredible. The fight in Florida is one of the most entertaining things I've seen in a long time in terms of, dude, I love how they've staged it. Like, it's just incredible fight. I want to ask our listeners something Uh, for anybody out there who's seen the film or if you watch it and you can pick up on this. I'm just interested in knowing whether or not this was sound design or score. Um, When you're in that fight in Florida that Sean is talking about, there's like a hand to hand combat fight in an apartment complex. And it's like a dark room and it's super, super brutal. Um, And there's like this like this like disturbing like beating sound that's happening throughout that scene. And I mm-hmm. would love to know whether or not that's Reznor and Ross or that sound design, because there's so much going on in the edit of this movie. And it's so it's so like it's so nuanced and like subtle, but like all, it's so every little detail is perfectly designed. I, you know what I'm talking about, Grabe? I wouldn't like, be surprised if it's both, because if, if I remember, like, I've only <laughs> seen, it happens really fast. There's a lot going on. I'd have to like sit yeah. down and watch it again. But I remember like, I think the impacts are scored like the, the impacts are super bassy. Like when they, like, like, they punch each other, it's like, <laughs> like it's it's got like hits yeah. to it versus just, you know, your Indiana Jones classic. Uh, but there's there was something like it was almost like a it was like a whoosh, like, yeah. like a there was, it was like probably this a mixture of both. But Amazing. And as a way, the way that's why the movie's so great, though, because when that stuff becomes almost the part of the world, it's an atmospheric nature of the movie. It's so well done. Something as simple as the way um, when he's listening to the Smiths and it cuts back and forth between what's in the headphones yeah. oh, or what's yeah. in the car and then the door closes, and then you hear it muted or it's, oh. you know, in his ears and it's like Fincher just playing around with that is like him just having a good time. And and you still marveling like the fact that you even think to do that is like so fantastic. And I love we you so much for that. Almost take him for granted. Like maybe this film, uh, uh, this film almost feels like it's like come and gone. And you have this masterclass filmmaker with a movie that's sitting on Netflix right now. And I don't know how it would have done theatrically. It might not have done well. I have no idea. But, you know, Fincher is one of those filmmakers that it's it should be celebrated when a new movie comes out from him. Um, And I really hope that people spend the time just just to watch it, because there's so much work that went into this movie. And you absolutely should see it. The behind the yeah. scenes on this, like just look up the visual effects, just look up anything about this film and the filmmaking and how they're making this movie. It's so interesting and it's so simple, but it's not. It comes across simple and very seamless and easy. But like you, you well, we all know the work that goes into that stuff. It's wild. And I almost feel like in five to ten years, like this is going to rank alongside something like the game just because it's not Zodiac and it's not Fight Club. Right. Um, where when someone mentions the game and you're a Fincher fan, you're like, oh, that's great. Like, I love that movie kind of thing. Yeah. But it doesn't get listed amongst his because because he has the social network on his filmography. Yeah. It's really easy to just be like, all right, well, it's not so and so. But like he still delivers these classic genre films. And I think are just it has me it has me excited for his I'm always excited for his next thing. But this feels to your point, like the kind of project that we don't put on that level, but it ha- he has so many like high concept ideas of like, you're saying like messing with whether we're in or out of his perspective with the music, the mm-hmm. way that the fight is sort of scored slash uh, designed. 
and things like like there's so much that happens that feels very high concept that I wonder what he's going to be like, oh, I tried it on the killer and now <laughs> I'm going to do it in this, you know, yeah. like like what are the things that he took from this that were risks or, you know, he was like, I don't know if it's going to work, but but this is a fun project to try it on. And it's, yeah. you know, I'm not worried about it being. I, I don't know else. if it's I don't know if it's 2023 or just the <laughs> industry and how I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but it feels like. And again, this is a this is a topic for another time, but just content overload in general uh, in terms of films and, and the way how many movies are coming out, how many are coming out in each day. And for a film like The Killer to kind of get lost mm. in the shuffle, it just worries me a little bit because uh, just in terms of the industry in general, like, are we putting out too much? Is there too much coming out? Are we losing sight of great work because it's 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 falling into streaming and Hulu and Amazon and Disney Plus and shows well, and movies and I just feel like we're we're overloading ourselves and we're almost not hurting the artists but we're not giving the artists the appreciation and the time they deserve to have a film come out and sit with audiences for a, a period of time and it just makes me sad like I feel like the killer is not being talked about anywhere well and I'll um, give you this though it's, I, it's about the audience going out of their way to find it because yeah. I've reached the point now at this year where a lot of people who are non-movie folk you know um, are coming up to me and saying like oh what's your favorite movie of the year or what's the best movie that you've yeah. seen this year and when I tell them it's Oppenheimer or Across the Spider-Verse you know, they're kind of like, oh, yeah, I need to see that still. You know, like these movies yeah. that are huge with us. Yeah. And it's it's really about the audience picking and choosing what they're going to go see. And and there's even major things that people just aren't going out of their yeah. way to go see. And that's just the reality of it. So I just think we have too much. There the is cheesecake a lot. Fa- yeah, I feel like movies have become the Cheesecake Factory menu. You there open is it a up lot. and there's just too much. I don't know what to get. You know, well, I wonder if it's going to start slowing down, you know, in 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 the post strike and productions, you know, sort of being pushed back to that level. Um, but, to, you know, to the point where, like the other title that I wanted to discuss, because a, a lot of people are bringing it up and I finally got a chance to catch up with it over the weekend was Godzilla uh, minus one. And that's a movie that I knew nothing about. It's a movie that I didn't even know was coming. It's not like it's getting, you know, the, the same kind of push that one of the MonsterVerse films is getting from Warner Brothers. There's a lot of talk lately about what the budget has been for it. Um, and and that's kind of put it on people's radars. People are going to the theaters to go check it out, especially if they like a Godzilla film. Um, I will say this. The one thing that people are saying about it is how strong the human characters are in it. The human characters are incredible in this. Um, for people who don't know what the movie is about, I'm just going to give you this basic level um, because I thought this was a tremendous way into it. The main character is it's set during 1945. It's the end of World War II. Japan is still kind of reeling. And there's a kamikaze pilot um, who was on a mission that would have encountered Godzilla. Um, and he decided to fake um, something wrong with his airplane. And he returns back to this island base the mechanics sort of go over it. They realize that he kind of lied about something being wrong with this. He just was afraid. He just didn't want to um, complete the kamikaze mission. And in Japanese culture, he's branded a coward. And it's like, how is he going to live with that moving forward? That is such a compelling drama that without even introducing Godzilla into it, it's it's exciting. And you want to see what happens with this guy going forward. And believe me, that's just the surface of what this man is going through. Um, but then on top of it, when he confronts Godzilla and has a chance to maybe fire his weapon at him and doesn't, it's like this extra guilt that's just put down on this man as a burden. Um, and then you get to all the Godzilla scenes that, that you know, obviously bringing people to it it's funny there's a lot of talk about the budget 
I think some of the Godzilla scenes in this movie look really fantastic, especially stuff that's set in the water. There's a lot of Jaws references to it, and there's Godzilla against boats or like tracking boats and stuff. But then there's a lot of time with Godzilla's on the mainland, and it looks very much like man in a rubber suit. And now I'm hearing from people who are like, oh, the filmmakers intentionally wanted to do that. Maybe. But when you have, you know, Godzilla King of the Monsters giving me lifelike recreations of Godzilla fighting uh, against massive creatures. I'm leaning a little bit more towards that because some of this stuff looked a little stiff and a little bit fake. And and it's rare in a Godzilla movie where I'm like, get back to the humans. But that stuff was so much more compelling to me than what was going on with the monster stuff. I liked it a lot. I didn't love it, um, but I'd give it four out of five. I thought it was, you know, worth seeing on the big screen for sure. Why is it called Godzilla minus one? Don't know. Can't tell you. <laughs> I wish they don't I explain knew. it in the movie. No, not that I if there's a reason for it, I did not pick up on it. But there's, huh. there's uh, nothing that I picked up on that that led me to understand why it was called Godzilla minus one. It's a specific title, though. It's so it's specific. because it's so because specific. Uh, Godzilla was invited to a wedding and then there was yeah. a falling out and they took away his plus one. No, but what, what, honestly, Sean, you saw the film, film. There's no indication as to why it's called that. Nothing that that hit me where I was like, oh, that's the reason for this. No, nothing. It's so weird. I All know. right. Well, if anybody listening, let me know about the killer sound design. Yes. Let us know about why it's called Godzilla minus one. Please. And I'm still waiting for answers about the Amazon scene in the killer. So send all, all right. that in to us. Please. I will say, having watched it, I understand your trepidation behind it. Right. Um, but that movie is loaded with brands like McDonald's. right from the get go with McDonald's and right. FedEx. And uh, we part work. of me. Well, we work is huge. <laughs> yes, that was really <laughs> super suspenseful with the people were outside the we work and they were about to deliver some stuff. And he's right. And I was like, wow, this is really this is intense. Yes, Gabe. Intense. Uh, this is from Reddit user wrote. I don't know. I don't know how to say that. I was so like, Reddit they're user listening to our light to our on, feed on r slash Godzilla. It says Godzilla's attack happens after the atomic attacks on Japan during World War Two, which set them back to zero, meaning Japan had to rebuild when Godzilla attacks. They start with less than nothing. So not one, but minus zero. So it's the idea that they were. The nuclear attacks. And then then they they considered that zero and then they were attacked again by Godzilla and it was minus one. According to this, and I I did see it a couple of times, like on Google, I I believe that. That sounds right. But I'm telling you, if that's described in the movie, then it went completely over my head. Well, and that's, isn't that, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not as well versed in the Godzilla, um, uh, mythos. And it's been, yeah, it's been a long time since I've like studied Godzilla, but that's the whole sort of. The metaphor of Godzilla came from was post World War Two and the idea yes, of, very much of the, Japan being attacked and the nuclear attack. It's almost like it, it, this was a good double feature with Oppenheimer. Oh, in that the bombs that were dropped on Japan in the Godzilla oh, mythology. I wanted to bring this up. Led to the creation. And, and, and of I know we have to close, but I think Kevin would find this funny. I don't know, Kevin, if you've seen the Fallout TV series trailer. No, know what that is. But I, I think it's, it's really it's it's a game, but it is it is uh, directed and produced, I think, showrunner, however you would say it, by Jonathan Nolan. And it is oh, about yeah. the world going through nuclear fallout and it, uh. then hundreds of years later picking up with the apocalypse. And there's a shot of like 12, like six uh, in the trailer of like six nuclear blasts going off. And I go, how funny is it that Christopher Nolan Drops Oppenheimer yeah. this year, and then Jonathan Nolan has a trait. Like they were both directing nuclear blasts at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and I thought and that was be, such a weird coincidence. 
And the John Jonathan, we don't talk about Jonathan Nolan a lot, and 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 he needs to be. I think it's because he's been in TV for so long. Because he was what was he? He was West doing Westworld. West right? yeah. I think it's but just because yeah, he was in. But he's, he's on TV. But he's very important to Chris's storytelling, sure. Chris Nolan's storytelling. Like like if for people who don't know, Memento was based on I believe a story that Jonathan Nolan wrote that then he gave to Christopher Nolan, and Christopher Nolan wrote a screenplay. And like Memento is really that jumpstart following was a big movie for Chris Nolan, Christopher Nolan. But I do feel like we don't talk about Jonathan Nolan a lot. And I think I, I'm I always find it interesting. And it's, and it's fascinating because I think Jonathan Nolan has Maybe we'll get him on the show. Accent. He's an American accent. Do you know who and else feels that Jonathan so, Nolan doesn't get talked about enough? Who? Jonathan Nolan. Jonathan Nolan. <laughs> he would be a fun guest. The, the Fallout yeah. series looks really good. He would be a fun guest. It would be fun to have. Yeah. I would love to talk to him. I'm just, I would be just fascinated to know just his relationship because Christopher Nolan used to live between, I think it was London and Chicago. I think that's mm. how his parents, so that's why Jonathan has an American accent. Um, it's a really fascinating story. Mm. I'm reading a book called The Nolan Variations right now, which I highly recommend to people. It's just a guy, I think his name is Tom Stone, I think is the author, but he sat with Nolan for years and kind of like uh, Hitchcock um, Truffaut. Truffaut. Yeah. Right. And I uh, just sat with Nolan for years and just kind of interviewed him from from his from the beginning of his life uh, wow. to, or beginning of his career. It's really fascinating. If you guys if are we get interested, Jonathan on, I'm going to make him shout Dunkirk. So just, <laughs> just to keep the streak alive. All right. Yeah. Um, let me know in the comments down below. In addition to the questions that Kevin is asking to have answered, I want to know uh, in, in light of Leave the World Behind, uh, a Netflix movie. That went right to the streaming service, um, unlike this, which did have a theatrical release, that you wish you got to see in theaters, whether it be a Red Notice or a Six Underground or something like that. What is a Netflix movie that went right to the streaming service that you wish got a chance to see in the theaters in I the would meantime? Even, I would even remove the went right to. I think there are plenty of them that they released theatrically, but it's super limited. Even. Yeah, yeah, yeah like, like Red Notice had like two weeks yeah. in like two theaters or whatever, whatever it would well, be like the, the theatrical windows for Netflix movies need to be like Apple's doing it right. And that's why, you know, and we all love Netflix, obviously, and all this, you know, and Apple, but like Netflix needs to look at what Apple's doing, like with Killers of the Flower Moon and Napoleon, where you make a film like I, I remember hearing that Napoleon, I could be wrong, was made specifically for Apple. And then Sony just became the distributor. Yes. And yeah. so. That's kind of hopefully the world we enter in. But Netflix obviously is such a big deal that I don't know that they're going to share with other studios. But yeah, hopefully we come to an agreement and we can get these theatrical. But, you know, they want it on the streaming servers. That makes sense. But we shall we'll see. see. All right. Well, speaking of Netflix and big directors, we might have a few others um, in line before we reach the end of the year. And of course, our top tens. Uh, so keep it right here with Real Blend so that we drop new episodes every Friday with fun interviews and good conversation like this. Follow us on social media. In the meantime, uh, he's not with us, but he's at Jake's Takes. We've got Kevin McCarthy TV, who is leaving Congress at the end of the year. I am at <laughs> Sean underscore O'Connell. He's at Gabe Kovach. And the show is at Real Blend. Yes, And Gabe. the show is on threads now. Yes. So if you use terrific. threads, go go follow us on threads. We is have no idea at, what the social it, media landscape will look like in the coming months. So we're on threads now. Do is I it at Real Blend? I'll just leave it at, at that. Threads? Is What's it at that? Real Blend? Yeah, yeah. Same, same handle. I got all the handles. Got all the handles. I love it. All right. Yeah. We'll talk to you guys next week. Threads. The man who moved the earth. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.